You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Take Time for You by Tina Bogren. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are talking about Take Time for You, Self-Care Action Plans for Educators. And we're going to be talking about Chapter 3 today, which is all about safety. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Well, before we get into the content, today we wanted to do a fun little game in the beginning of the show. So we're going to do two truths and a lie. Laura, I'm going to let you go first. I feel like don't look at my face because I'll give away which ones. (laughs) I'm going to block my face. Okay, ready? Okay. I've never broken or sprained a single bone in my body. My aunt is a famous telenovela actress in Mexico, and I'm certified in scuba diving. Okay. I'm going to go, I think the lie is the telenovela. No. What? (laughs) No way. (laughs) Oh my gosh, what a surprise. (laughs) Tell me more. How would I come up with that as a lie? (laughs) I don't know. I was like, no way. (laughs) Yeah, my aunt, my grandpa's brother, twin brother, raised his whole family, a very large family in Mexico City. And my aunt, who kind of looks like me, is a pretty famous actress in Mexico. She's been on tons of telenovelas. She's been in movies. What a fact. But the lie is that I'm certified in scuba diving. I can't stand going in the ocean. I'm terrified of everything. I don't even like to dip my feet in the water. I'm a pool person, 100%. And yeah, I've never broken or sprained any bones. Well, I have to agree about the ocean, but this is a fear that has been increasing as I've aged. Like, I felt like I used to be more reckless when I was young. I don't know, you get older, your anxiety grows. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe you just get a little smarter, like more cautious. You perhaps. learn, you see Wearing. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two sides of the same. Yeah. Coin. I mean, in Hawaii once I did fully go in actually a few times, probably the most dangerous place because the water was warm, oh, you know. <laughs> I have a horrible memory of being in Hawaii. And it's like, this is the worst place to really go swimming because you can see and there's like a lot going on down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I just remember I swam, we were snorkeling. I swam like pretty far out in this bay. We were watching turtles. It was beautiful. And like I went down, kind of like dove down and looked out really far. And I was just like, oh, my God, if a shark is coming what would I do? And then I just turned on a little like turbo rocket that I didn't know I had and swam so fast back to shore. Like I did not stop. Yeah. Heaved myself onto the sand like, <gasps> and that was kind of like it for me. The ocean, it's the vastness of it. The possibilities. It's just too much. Yeah. I mean, don't get me started on lakes because lakes are like worse <laughs> than the ocean for me. Oh, Yeah, I went to summer camp in third grade and I had to have the special wristband that said this girl can't swim because I refused to get in the lake. You know, I had that color that let all the counselors know, don't let her near the water. And I'm a great swimmer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. For a pool, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. Okay. Wow. Now I feel I know more about you, which is always fun. All right. I'm excited. Read yours to me. We actually kind of had the same brain on this one. Number one. I was a child actor. Number two, my dream travel destination is Iceland. Number three, 
I've broken my arm. Oh, wow. That is weird. That is weird. All of ours are related <laughs> to each other, kind of. Okay. I think the lie is that you've broken your arm. Eh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay, what is it? The lie is that my travel destination is Iceland. What? I totally believe that one. I wouldn't mind going, but I really want to go to Europe. I would rather go to like France or something. But okay. no, that's the truth. I broke in my arm okay. when I was young. Tell us about being a child actor. I went back and forth on if I should say failed child actor. Because <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of too specific would be a giveaway. I mean, okay, so... I was a pretty cute kid. I have really curly hair naturally uh-huh. and allegedly an exotic look, <laughs> according to child acting agents. So um, I was enrolled in a acting school when I was like three or four. I did model in some runway, baby runway modeling Ooh, shows. Okay. <laughs> Except I liked the limelight too much and I was a horrible listener. <laughs> and then when I went to acting school, I just remember, you know, they teach you how to stand. They teach you these things to say. And then I started going out for commercial auditions. I remember this one audition. It was for Cookies. And I still remember the script for the commercial because I practiced it so much. You can Uh enjoy them with your mom, your dad, or even your grandma and grandpa. And then you like ate the cookies. And we pulled up for the audition and I was like, I need a minute, mom. And I like turned to the side, casually threw up in my blanket from nerves, (laughs) turned to my mom and was like, okay, mom, I'm ready. And she was just like, this is not okay. And that was the end of my acting career. Oh my gosh. Wow. Being a child actor is a horrible idea. Look at what's happened. Oh my gosh. Even though I could have been the cash cow for my family, (laughs) probably was better in the end. (laughs) All right. I guess we'll wrap it up with two truths and a lie. Stick around after the break. We'll be back with this week's chapter. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us. All right. So chapter three is all about safety needs. If we think about moving up the hierarchy, the ladder of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this step is all about safety. So safety is really about order, predictability, fairness. All of these things work together to reduce the possibility of physical and emotional harm. But feeling unsafe can cause anxiety, which if left unchecked can really negatively impact your digestion, your nervous system, and your immune system. So if you feel like you're really struggling with your anxiety, please see a doctor. They can be very helpful and you don't need to live with anxiety ruling your life. But mostly you want to be safe and also feel safe. So those are the two things that should be working together. So you can think about like flying on an airplane. You can know in your head that you're really pretty safe, right? They have statistics about safety on airplanes. (laughs) Yeah. But you can still like feel somewhat unsafe, especially as you're being reminded of the risks, like when they do that safety presentation and you're just like, oh my God, like I hope I don't have to use this information. And then that can contribute to making you feel unsafe. 
I don't know about you, Laura, but I am a somewhat nervous flyer. I mean, I don't love that feeling when you take off, but no, I'm not. I'm pretty relaxed on a plane. It might be the only place where I am relaxed. The Bloody Marys might help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So safety can be connected to your sense of control. So if you feel that you don't have control in a situation, you may end up feeling unsafe. And we can apply that to the airplane situation. Or you can also think of people who always need to be the driver because it's hard to not feel in control when you're the passenger. School safety is on everyone's minds, but actual risks for schools is really low because they're safer than ever, which I didn't really know. I was surprised to read that. Me too. Uh, Safety has improved and violence has decreased for students and teachers by nearly every measure. And according to a school improvement network survey conducted shortly after the December 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, 92% of teachers reported feeling safe at school. So even after the shooting, 92% of teachers felt safe. I wish that they had included a more current statistic, but that's some good information. As gun violence is in the forefront of educators' minds, we need to really be creating welcoming, safe spaces of learning for both students and adults. If your safety needs are regularly met, you should feel pretty blessed. Signs of this are having a secure job and a steady paycheck having health insurance, having a savings account, and just general protection from the elements. So these are things that can help us feel safe. However, if you worry about losing your job, struggling to make ends meet, lack health insurance, or if you worry about losing your home, then it may be hard to even pay attention because you're so focused on just your basic safety. There are some questions on page 45. And you might want to consider your answers to these questions, which are like, do you tune into and honor your intuition when it comes to your safety? And is there a gap between your perceived and actual safety? Do you want me to answer these? Because I don't know if you have something to say. please. Well, first of all, I listen to a lot of murder podcasts, (laughs) you know, a lot of true crime. And on one of them, they say F politeness, trust your gut. If you feel unsafe, don't try to be nice. If you know, somebody approaches you and you get a bad vibe, just don't worry about being polite. I think as women, we often are worried about that and can get into some sticky situations. But there's a massive gap between my perceived safety and my actual safety. I always feel more unsafe in the car. I have irrational fears about getting carjacked or someone like a road rage incident where someone chases me. You know, I'm just always thinking about those things. And I think this kind of made me recognize that, that there is a massive gap between my perceived safety, where I feel unsafe a lot of the time, and my actual safety, because these things really aren't happening you know? Well, yes, they're not happening to people I know, you know, we've talked about that in Southern California, there are issues. Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking too, is when you live in or near a major metro center, I think you are just aware of more crime, you hear about it more. If you watch the news, then good golly, that's going to be on the <laughs> forefront of your mind. I try to avoid the news as much as possible. Because I do think it increases your perceived sense of unsafeness yeah perceived sense of (laughs) lack of safety (laughs) yeah that sounds right (laughs) yeah that's a really good point 
They have some safety strategies listed on page 45, and they suggest that you go through and pick one or two strategies that would be the most helpful for you in moments where you do not feel safe. And you can use the strategies to create your action plan, which we'll talk about in a minute. So some of their suggestions are you can record your worries in a journal or a book, maybe consider talking to a therapist that is generally helpful across the board, it seems. You can stick to a schedule if consistency is calming for you. So that sort of depends on person by person, but that might help. You can listen to calming music or use essential oils. You can try different calming activities like yoga or meditation. If you have a lot of financial worries, you can talk to a financial planner, somebody who can give you advice. You can ensure your family has a safety plan, especially if you live in areas that are prone to fires, earthquakes. Oh, that's us. Tornadoes, hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. You can memorize essential phone numbers instead of relying on your phone. This one was huge for me. I think I only have one person's phone number memorized and it would not be helpful for me currently in an emergency. So I have <laughs> some to-dos for sure when it comes to memorizing phone numbers. They recommend making copies of all of your essential documents so you have them just in case. You can pay attention to your surroundings so you're aware and know where the nearest exits are. And you can just think about what you can do in general to bring consistency to any areas of your life that kind of lack order. So Laura, did any of those stick out to you? I mean, obviously, the one that made me laugh was the, you know, where we live. I was going to ask you, do you have what kind of kit do you have? Do you have an earthquake kit? Do you have a fire kit? Because you're in a high fire area, right? We both are. Yes. We get evacuated for wildfires every other year, typically. But lately, it's been kind of like every year. So we have a fireproof safe that most important documents are kept in. Birth certificates, marriage certificates, passports. And I think it's, it's like the size of a briefcase. So that one's really easy to pick up and go. But I don't actually have like a firm plan. We have earthquakes, obviously, in Southern California. And in our garage, there's extra water and some canned food. But I do think it could use a little shaping up. I recently got my earthquake kit together. Yes. Not just some canned food. I got Great. like the five to 10 year shelf life, pellets and bars of food, the water packets, like tons of water packets. I've got it all. I've got the little radio that you can crank it for the power. You wind <laughs> and it. You can plug yeah. in your phone to it. That's great. Uh, so yeah, I kind of, you know, looked up some websites and, and got the, the whole thing. My mom is always like, never let your gas tank go below half. If you need to evacuate Southern California, you need to be able to get out of there. So I try not to wow. let my gas tank. That's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> That's smart. But in terms of the other things on the list, you know, a big one for me is I used to be a big avoider of things like finances and going to the doctor, going to the dentist. This has changed in the last five to seven years. I started facing everything. I got a financial planner. You know, I stay on top of that stuff. I started going to the dentist very, very regularly instead of avoiding it. You know, those are those things that wake you up in the middle of the night and you go, oh, I have to do that thing. So yeah. facing those, just tackling them and taking them on, you wouldn't believe the way that just frees up all mm. this mental energy and stress. Yes. The author gives some examples of things that she has implemented into her own life that have helped her, like 
meeting with a financial advisor yearly, staying on top of her regular doctor and dental exams, carrying essential oils to help with relaxing, meditating, going to yoga class, and just tightening up her morning routine. Using all this information, you're going to now create your level two action plan. So look back through the suggested strategies or just think about the ones I just talked about and identify the ones that appeal to you. And then next, you're going to narrow down the strategies to the ones that feel reasonable and don't seem to require too much effort or work. And then using there's a great table on page 48. You can choose which days you want to implement your new strategies on. And then for the next seven days, you're going to track which days you used your strategies and make notes about how you feel afterwards. So after you've done this for a week, then you can look at the reflection questions on page 50. And these questions will help you figure out if you need to stay at this level for the next week, or if you can move up the ladder to the next step on the hierarchy. So some examples of the reflection questions are what worked well for you this week and why? Where did you struggle and why? Were there any issues that prevented you from employing the new strategies on the days of your choice? What differences did you notice in yourself after implementing your new strategies? And thinking ahead to the next week, do you think it would be helpful to stay at this level or do you feel ready to move to the next level? Do you need to maybe pick a different strategy or are the ones that you chose working for you? And then as an educator, how does focusing on your own safety needs impact your work at school? And did it impact your life outside of school? So Laura, I thought that now would be a good time for us to kind of chat about how we've felt over the years working in schools as far as your safety is concerned. Because I liked this chapter, but ultimately I felt it was a little light on information or just maybe stories, I guess. Yeah, the safety issues that we face, especially as maybe SLPs and special educators or teachers working in unsafe areas. Yes. You know, I wrote a bunch of notes down actually when we read the introduction, because Tina did mention that having students who make you feel unsafe or working in areas that make you feel unsafe. And, you know, when I started out as an SLP, I was at two schools that were in really unsafe neighborhoods. There were issues with staff parking lots that were full or would get locked. And on days where I needed to maybe leave midway through the day, I couldn't park in the locked parking lot unless I wanted to hunt down the plant manager and get him to open it for me. And so I'd have to park on a street behind the school next to a major freeway in Los Angeles where there was a lot of dumping. You'd see like mattresses that had been burned. I mean, it was just like a scary, scary area to walk. And another school where there were just a lot of incidents that would happen. Towards the end of the day, you'd start hearing helicopters circling and you'd know that the school was going to get locked down soon. You know, being in lockdown situations at schools So yeah, where you work, that used to make me feel very unsafe. And yeah, I I don't think I recognized how big of an impact that was having on me at the time. But now I know, looking back, that it was contributing to my stress levels. Yeah, I mean, of course. I have to say, as far as location goes, I have not really had that same experience because I worked at a school in Orange County. While there are areas of Orange County that are less safe than others, I was in more affluent areas. So we did have, you know, literally speaking of fire evacuations, we have had fire evacuations and I've had, 
you know, not necessarily the school I worked at, but some of the schools that are more in the hills where fire risk is really high. I remember seeing a picture of a school that had to be evacuated because there were flames literally coming up to the fence of the playground. Oh my gosh. So scary. And then once you try to leave the school, if everyone's evacuating, you know, the parking lots are just stopped and you can't make progress and it's, and people are looking for their kids and it's really scary. So environmentally, you know, from concerns like that, yeah, I've had some scary situations for sure. Yeah. But as far as lockdowns and stuff, not so much, but I can only imagine. Yeah. The other issue that we face as SLPs is that sometimes we do have students with behaviors that are so severe that we feel like we're in danger when we're working with those students, right? Absolutely. So I experienced that in my internship, which luckily the my supervisor, when I was in grad school, my supervisor at a middle school wouldn't let me work with one student. And she could always sense when another student was, was going to erupt and would try to get me out of the situation. Yeah. But yeah, I had a student completely flip a huge table towards me in grad school. I had some kids mm. in my moderate to severe autism class who were really, really aggressive, pulling out hair, biting. You know, the worst that would happen to me was one student kicked my shins a lot and he spit in my face but he was really really violent towards a lot of other people and another girl who was really aggressive oh would dig her fingernails into my skin so I would everybody who worked with her would have little scabs all over their hands and arms and with those kids they often have behavior support those kids both had non-public agency behavior interventionists but the turnover was rapid. <laughs> Nobody would stick it out. So there wasn't consistency with that behavior support. Yeah. You'd have a substitute behaviorist there who didn't know the kid. And then that the kid feels all dysregulated and you're sitting there worrying what's going to happen here. So you just don't yeah, feel like you can do yeah. your job. And I don't know what the solution to those types of things is. Yes. I think this is part of working with the mod severe population that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it can be really, really scary, especially when I worked at the high school level. You know, we had a self-contained mod severe classroom on campus and it was never, I never really felt personally worried about my safety, but there were students that maybe didn't receive speech services that, you know, I can remember some, we also had a girl who would scratch and I remember like, or like pinch forearms. And I remember the aides would wear protective sleeves. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to kind of work around that when you're the SLP, you can sit kind of far enough away where they can't really get your arms. But I did feel for the aides because it's their job to kind of be up close with the student and helping them maybe with some hand over hand, whatever's going on. And yeah, it's pretty scary, especially when the students are larger at the high school level. Sometimes they weigh more than you. They're bigger than you, taller than you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the fear was for me at the middle school. Not that these kids were bigger than me. I was still, you know, I'm pretty big. <laughs> but, You're a pretty tall gal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the kids that I was the most scared of was in second grade. I'm talking a tiny boy, but he, if you yeah. read his file, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. some people had been fired from previous schools because there was one incident where he was on top of a file cabinet 
and the aide was trying to get him down and he jumped onto the aide's back, flung himself across the room and jumped onto the aide's back and whatever the aide tried to do to get him off of him, you know, his mom got that employee fired from the school. Oh, wow. It's this horrible position sometimes that people are put in where with us, if we are scared to work with a kid, you feel like you're not good at your job because why can't you provide the speech therapy in a way that, you know, you're managing the behavior. We are trained in behavioral principles, but, but then also those people who are there to work on behavior and want to touch the the student as little as possible. I mean, it's just, it's impossible sometimes. I know. And those are the lowest paid employees too, the aides, which is a bummer because, you know, that is a really stressful job. So yeah, these are serious issues. I follow some Instagram accounts that are hard to follow, but they talk a lot about teacher safety and educator safety. And some of the stuff I see on there is alarming. Uh But, you know, we need to talk about these things because I think the first step towards change is just being honest and you don't have to be a superhero and you don't have to take abuse. And I think for all things, there's a balance. So part of that is speaking up and kind of saying like, even though I chose to work in special education, it doesn't mean that I signed up every day to get bit or really injured, you know? Yeah. And of course, for SLPs, I guess the main thing is advocating for yourself. If you don't feel safe with a student, you know, telling the teacher, I have to push into your classroom. I want to work in the class where you're there. I don't feel comfortable necessarily having that student come to my room. You know, I think a lot of SLPs have had their room kind of torn apart before by a student. So we just have to advocate for ourselves make sure that you're not in positions where you really don't feel safe or where you could get really hurt. And hopefully that will cut down on some of your stress because that's why safety is this one of these bottom rungs of the ladder. If you don't feel safe, you can't focus on all these other things that you need to be able to focus on to be a good SLP or a good teacher. Absolutely. Well, I hope that this information has been helpful to everybody out there. I encourage you to fill out the plan for chapter three and to consider your own safety needs and to take an inventory of how you're feeling. And if any of this is helpful, you know, feel free to message us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. And we are here to listen. So Everybody have a great day and tune in next time for chapter four of Take Time for You. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. 